morning. <clears throat> Good morning. This is, as, uh, as Joe said, this is going to be like the two-hour delay version of the service. Everything's going to be shortened up a little bit. Um, no, really, stop complaining that the sermon's going to be shorter. Yeah. This is a, this is a rough world that, that we're living in, isn't it? Tim and Christine, you're bringing Justin into this world where all this chaos is going on. I remember Mary and I uh, had just, uh, Mary just felt Kara move in her belly when 9-11 happened. So um, sometimes we go through times like this. Um, I'm grateful for this community God's given us at this time. Let, let's look at Paul's letter to the Romans here in chapter 14. Uh, we've been going through this section of Romans chapters 14 and 15 with the theme of you can do whatever you want. And as you may remember, the phrase, you can do whatever you want, was immortalized when my wife uttered it to me on vacation. In the context of informing me that I could do whatever I wanted to do, which was not entirely accurate. The fact is, yes, I could do whatever I wanted to, but doing so would carry with it certain consequences. As a matter of fact, I had the opportunity, the ability, the privilege, the responsibility to choose to do what I wanted to do on vacation, but because I was on vacation with Mary, I needed to make that decision in light of the particular relational context in which those decisions were being made. In other words, yes, I could do whatever I wanted, but it would be much better off if I chose to do what we wanted. And by we, we mean, of course, Mary. Because pronouns are difficult in marriage. And so here we are in Romans 14 where Paul says in verse 19, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. And to make sense of this passage, I, I want to look back at, I think, two passages in Scripture that are being echoed here. The first is in Mark. Mark's Gospel in chapter 9, and you get a parallel in, in Matthew's and Luke's Gospel, the same story, but uh, the one in, in Mark is the most vivid. Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who... Actually, let me start before that. A teacher said, John, one of Jesus' disciples, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. Don't stop him. Jesus said, no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Now, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And everyone will be salted with fire. Salt's good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Here in this passage, Jesus is talking about God doing his work and about God's people, in particular Jesus' disciples, trying to do that faithfully, yet encountering the fact that it seems somebody is doing something that they weren't aware of, that they didn't authorize, that they hadn't signed off on, and they're telling Jesus, yeah, so we saw this guy doing this, this good thing, and we told him to cut it out because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus said, you're a moron. However, Jesus says, It's also possible that instead of doing good, someone could cause one of these little ones, one of my people, one of the beloved children of my father, to sin. And it would be better for him, if he did so, to, to, to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Here, here we have a p- passage of Scripture that has exercised a Darwinian influence on fundamentalism over the years. You may have heard of Origen, the great biblical scholar of the fourth century, who read this passage saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and so forth, and castrated himself. Later on, he came to regret his decision and decided that he needed to adopt a different method of reading Scripture. In the same way, I don't think we're supposed to say, well... I accidentally caused somebody to sin. I better make sure that doesn't happen, so now I need to go find a large millstone to tie around my neck and be thrown into the sea. And of course, because the sea Jesus is talking about here is probably the Sea of Galilee, now I have to figure out how to get over to Israel. I have to figure out how to get this large, heavy millstone over there, which is going to cost a fortune. Maybe I have to make arrangements to buy it there and tie it to my neck. No, this is not what we're supposed to do with this passage. What we're supposed to recognize is the hyperbole Jesus is using here. This is a rhetorical device. Jesus is using this figurative language to talk about just how important it is that we recognize the gravity of sin, not only for ourselves, but the fact that we can lead others to sin, even unwittingly, even with the best of intentions. We can do things that cause others to sin. And so when Paul says, Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food's clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat something that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. I think what Paul's doing here is echoing these words of Jesus, this idea that goes all the way back to what Jesus said about how we're not to cause one another to stumble. The other passage I want to look at is, is in Romans, and those of you were fans of Rush or the Colbert Report or both will remember when Rush was interviewed on the Colbert Report. Rush is known for having especially long songs, and Stephen Colbert said, asking one of his questions, have you ever written a song that was so long that you were influenced later on by yourselves at the beginning of the song? And you could say the same thing about Romans. Right here, Paul is, I think, echoing something he said in the beginning of chapter 5, where he says, look, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I think Paul is hearkening back to that when he says in verse 17 that the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. I think what Paul's harking back to in that Mark passage is the basic courtesy that we have to show one another of not enabling one another, not encouraging one another, not helping one another, not even nudging one another to stumble. You know, most of you, that I have a propensity literally to stumble and to fall down and to break stuff. And it would be a horribly inconsiderate thing if one of you, if we were walking someplace and you said, hey, let's take that shortcut across that icy, rocky part. That would be obnoxious. And there are times in our lives that we have to recognize that given the weaknesses, the propensities to stumble that our brothers and sisters have, we need to be careful about what we serve. We need to be careful about what we put on the TV or on the screen. We need to be careful about the things that we talk about. This is just basic courtesy. This is looking out for one another. But as we've been talking about, I think what Paul is dealing with here in Romans, chapters 14, the beginning of 15, is something that has a a bigger theological component than that. He is talking about how God is working out his kingdom. He is building his church. It's, It's not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And God is trying to build up his church. And so if any of us, for the sake of food, causes our brother to stumble, then we're destroying the work of God. And how stupid would it be, Paul is saying, to destroy the work of God for the sake of a pork chop? And so I want to raise the question, if you look on the cover of your bulletin, with respect to a particular issue that is of concern to me. Some people were raised by wolves. I was raised by Northeastern liberal Protestants. I have the scars to prove it. I played in handbell choirs in both Congregationalist and Presbyterian settings. Now, for those of you who have had the blessing of avoiding handbell choirs, let me describe what that looks like in a church setting. You you know there's going to be handbells when you walk in, So if you get there early enough, you can then turn around and walk out and go someplace else. But if you show up late, you'll find that across the front, there will be tables with heavy padding and this nice heavy cloth, and on it will be sitting a whole mess of bells. And then at some point, out will walk a bunch of people, mostly children wearing these white gloves, and then there will be some older children or perhaps adults because the lowest bells are big and heavy. 
And because I was big, though not heavy at the time, I had to play the bass bells. And to me, handbells are associated with music in the church for the sake of music, not for the sake of worship. I do not remember in all the times I played handbells or rehearsed playing handbells or rehearsed with the youth choir in the churches at which I played handbells, us talking about the fact that what we were doing was singing praise to Jesus. What I remember was that we had to hold the hymnals a certain way, that we had to have proper posture, that we could not have our hands, our arms folded while we were singing, and that we had to make sure that our ties were straight and our ears were clean and so forth. And with the handbells, what was most important was not that we were bringing glory to God by banging these things. It was that we had the right gloves and the right hands and that we were playing them with the proper, uh, the proper technique of the wrist snap and that, uh, in my case, that you could go back and forth and, and put them down where you left them so that they'd be where you needed them to be when you picked them up. There are people still, and there certainly were in these churches I grew up in, whose attitude was more handbell. They would have been glad to have a handbell choir every Sunday. But to me, it seemed like a whole lot of trouble and a whole lot of expense, quite frankly, for something that I didn't think sounded all that great, to be honest. But something that ultimately was supposed to be leading us to worship, but ended up becoming the focus of the exercise rather than Jesus. This is not confined to handbells. And if you ask handbell enthusiasts, they will tend to point to churches where you have things like uh, light shows and fog machines, uh, or where you have people who plug in their instruments and play them loudly, people who sing these solos where all the focus is on them, and other people in that world will look and say, hey, how about that big expensive pipe organ that you just restored for $60,000? You think Jesus really needs to be worshipped with a pipe organ? I mean, there are churches that have moved into old churches and have symbolically taken the organ outside to the parking lot and burned it to make it clear that they are departing from that kind of thing. And so it goes with choirs, and so it goes with drums, and all kinds of other things. And so the question, I think, would would be, if we are to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, what would we do if say, while I was under anesthesia from surgery, we received the donation of a set of handbells and somebody on behalf of the church received them and they were installed here. How would we handle this? What kind of calculus would we apply? Because, I mean, handbells are just handbells. It's just music. We wouldn't want to destroy the, the work of God for the sake of handbells. We want to do what leads to peace and to building one another up. And I think what we would need to do is we would need, if people were aware that handbells created a particular problem for people, to be aware of that, to be sensitive to that, to recognize that that was not only perhaps offensive in one's ears, but that that was associated with a particular type of worship or failure to worship that really ought to be avoided, that 
that created a real problem. In my case, in a lot of ways, it was that way of doing church that prevented me from hearing the gospel until, until I was in, a freshman in high school. But I think Jesus would also say to me, Pulling, get over yourself, grow up. You need to deal with the fact that there are people who can, in fact, worship God by use of handbells. Just because some people have not used them to good purposes does not mean that they cannot be used to good purposes. And just because you don't particularly like it doesn't mean that you can't be polite and worship along with others, even if that style isn't what you would prefer. The challenge, as I said last week, for all of us, as we're seeking not to destroy the work of God for the sake of food or handbells or whatever, but as we try to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, the challenge for all of us is to grow up. And I think what Paul is saying here in this section of Romans is he's saying to the people who have these intense scruples about what you can and can't eat, about what you have to do on certain days, He's saying to them, I am not with you theologically, but I love you and you're part of this church. And so I am saying to the people who don't have a problem with eating meat, as I don't, you need to love your brothers and sisters who do. You need to make sure you're not destroying this work that God is doing simply for the sake of your pleasures, your preferences, what you like to do. You Your freedom is not the freedom to do whatever the hell you want to do. Freedom means the freedom to do as you ought to do. And so in this case, Paul would say, if you're with somebody who who feels strongly that you shouldn't be working on the Sabbath, then don't whip out your cell phone and send an email in front of them. But he would also say to the person who has convictions about that, Don't freak out when your brother or sister does. You need to show love to your brothers and sisters by being tolerant of what they do and by respecting that they are making their choices. If what your focus is on is on being offended, you're going to be undermining peace. You're going to be breaking down rather than building up the body of Christ. If you're offended that somebody is doing something you don't think they ought to be doing, And if your focus is on being offended and if you're calling everybody's attention to the fact that you're being offended, that's not helpful. And if you're offended that the other person's offended and you call your attention to the fact that you're offended, that's not helpful either. Now, what Paul wants us to do is to look out for each other. And as we do these things, as we think about the things that we do in worship on a Sunday morning, as we think about the way that we celebrate the things that we celebrate, as we think about the ways that we have our fun and festive events at New Hope, it's incumbent upon us to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And so that's the question for us. As we think about the ways we do this in our house church, in our family, in our congregation, but also how we do things and say things that lead to peace and mutual edification among our fellow evangelicals, among our fellow Christians here in Baltimore and in the United States and in the world. I think one of the ways that we can have some guidance on that 
is by respecting the things that the church has done and taught over the centuries. So, for example, the fact that for 2,000 years the church has used wine in celebrating the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, probably means that a blanket prohibition of alcohol is not what Paul has in mind here. But I think we're called to hold loosely those things that we're supposed to hold loosely, even as we cling tightly to those things that are vital. Unity and fundamentals, liberty and incidentals, and at all things, charity. So let's stand up and join together as we prepare to take communion. We'll join together in reciting the Nicene Creed. Along with the faithful churches throughout the ages, we do believe this stuff. We really do. Then after that, I'll invite you to come forward. At at New Hope, our our communion table is open to all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We invite you to take the elements, bring them back to your seat, and, uh, and then we'll partake of them together. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice.